Hey there everyone and welcome back to the finals countdown series which is brought to you by MedTalks. Today we're still in the cardiology section of the series and in today's podcast I'm going to be talking to you about heart failure. My name is Saho and I'm a junior doctor working in the East Midlands. So I'm sure you all know by now that the heart is divided into two sides with the right side pumping blood to the lungs via the pulmonary artery and the left side pumping blood to the rest of the body via the aorta. Heart failure is essentially a failure of the left or right ventricle or even both in pumping enough blood to the lungs and to the rest of the body. The cardiac output becomes inadequate for the body's requirements. And there are numerous causes for this which we will go on to explore. As of September 2018, just under 1 million people have a diagnosis of heart failure and the average age of diagnosis is 77 years old. So, heart failure can be split into several different types. Some of these classifications are historical and others are used in today's times. So the ones that are used most commonly are acute and chronic and the manage for these different differs and we'll discuss these shortly. There's also left-sided heart failure and right-sided heart failure, reduced ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction, systolic and diastolic, and these are less commonly used, and then there's high output and low output, which is also another historical classification. So, why does heart failure occur? It's often the end stage of many different cardiac diseases, including ischemic heart disease, which occurs due to myocardial ischemia or infarction, hypertension, valvular heart disease, so mitral regurgitation or aortic stenosis, pericarditis, drugs can also cause heart failure such as chemotherapy drugs, alcohol can lead to heart failure, thyrotoxicosis, arrhythmias and cardiomyopathies. Also conditions which bring about an increased demand on the heart such as anemia, pregnancy and sepsis can lead to heart failure. So let's explore how a patient with suspected heart failure may present. In order to understand the symptoms and the signs of heart failure, it's imperative that we think about the right and the left ventricles. So the right ventricle pumps blood to the lungs via the pulmonary artery. Now what happens if the right ventricle fails to pump this blood? Well, the blood will accumulate in the right ventricle. Then there is a back pressure and a backflow of blood to the right atrium and further down the body. This leads to fluid overload, which causes symptoms such as peripheral edema, so ankle swelling, sacral edema, or even ascites, a raised JVP, and congested hepatic vascular system, which leads to hepatomegaly. Now let's move on to the left ventricle. So the left ventricle pumps blood to the rest of the body via the aorta. Now if this ventricle fails, then firstly, not enough blood is being pumped to the body, so it causes tissue hypoperfusion due to reduced cardiac output, which leads to fatigue, easy exhaustion, and poor exercise tolerance. Backflow of blood to the pulmonary system causes pulmonary edema, which leads to breathlessness, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, which is a sudden onset of breathlessness when lying down asleep due to redistribution of blood, and it's always useful to ask patients how many pillows they sleep with during the night, and orthopnea, which is breathlessness when lying flat. So these are the common features of the history of someone with suspected heart failure. Now let's think about what signs we may find when examining a patient 
Firstly, I'll let you have a think for a few moments before we go on. So, looking at the patient from the end of the bed, their general status at rest will give you some clues. Are they breathless or tachneic? Do they feel more breathless when lying flat, suggestive of orthopnea? Do they look visibly edematous? Have a feel of the pulse. Are they tachycardic? Or can you identify any arrhythmias that may be contributing towards the heart failure? Are there any signs in their hands which may point to risk factors of heart disease, such as tar staining for, from cigarette smoking or xanthomata due to hypercholesterolemia? Look for a raised JVP. The JVP is a jugular venous pressure, which is an indirect measure of the central venous pressure. The internal jugular vein connects pretty much directly to the right atrium, and there are no valves between these two structures to cause a disruption of, to the flow of blood. So it's a continuous blood flow. So any changes in right atrial pressures would ultimately lead to changes in the internal jugular vein pressure. And we use the JVP because it provides us with a good indication of the patient's fluid status. So a raised JVP points towards a hypervolemic state, secondary, for example, to right-sided heart failure. Difficulties arise when trying to distinguish the JVP from the carotid pulsation, which is in close proximity. And there are two main ways that we can differentiate between the JVP and the carotid pulse. Firstly, the JVP has a double waveform, so two pulses, whereas the carotid has a single pulsation, which is easily palpable, unlike the JVP. Now, to measure the JVP, you want to place the patient in, the, in a 45 degrees position, lying down, with the head tilted towards the left side, and you're looking between the two heads of the sternocleidomastoid muscle, and you're looking for this double waveform of the JVP. In order to measure the height, you need to use the sternal angle and measure upwards, and it should be no more than 3 centimetres. If the JVP is 4 centimetres or more, then this is a positive result. So now you want to have a look at the patient's face to identify any signs suggestive of underlying cardiovascular disease. For example, mitral stenosis may produce a malar flush. They may have xanthelasma around their eyes. They may have conjunctival pallor, suggestive of anemia, and corneal arcus, also suggestive of hyperlipidemia. Moving down the chest, you want to palpate the chest and see if you can feel a, an apex beat which is displaced due to left ventricular dilatation. So normally, you'd feel it in the fifth intercostal space, midclavicular line. There may also be a right ventricular heave due to the right ventricular hypertrophy. On auscultation of the lungs, you may hear bilateral basal end expiratory crackles due to pulmonary congestion. On auscultation of the heart sounds, you may hear a murmur due to aortic or mitral valve disease. Commonly, an ejection systolic murmur may be heard due to aortic stenosis or a pan-systolic murmur due to mitral regurgitation. There may be an S3 gallop sound. S3 sound occurs after S2 during early ventricular filling in diastole and occurs as a result of incoming blood from the left atrium hitting the walls of the distended left ventricle and its main association is heart failure in the elderly. Have a feel of the patient's abdomen and see if you can find any evidence of hepatomegaly. So the liver edge is normally palpable in children and thin adults and some patients may have a palpable right lobe of the liver. It is usually smooth, uniform and non-tender and it descends to meet the palpating fingers on inspiration. 
Hepatomegaly is a non-specific sign and it can have numerous causes, but it's always worth noting if you are considering heart failure. And moving towards the back, you can feel the sacrum to find any pitting edema. And similarly in the legs, is there any pitting edema? And pitting edema is essentially the presence of abnormal amounts of interstitial fluid. And we say it's pitting when the indentation created upon applying pressure remains when the pressure is released. Okay, so at this point we are suspecting that this patient has heart failure. NICE guideline splits heart failure into acute and chronic, and the management is, a dif is different according to which one it is. Acute heart failure is a sudden deterioration of symptoms and signs, which may be on a background of chronic heart failure, so this would be known as acute on chronic, or it may be the, a new onset presentation without a background of cardiac dysfunction, which is just acute heart failure. Right, so how are we going to investigate this further? Firstly, we must take a detailed history and perform an examination looking for the signs and the symptoms that we previously discussed. The next investigations are key at this stage. So getting an ECG trace would be useful because it would give us some clues of previous heart disease, such as an old myocardial infarction, any underlying arrhythmias, any evidence of ventricular hypertrophy, pericardial disease, or bundle branch block. A normal ECG will make heart failure less likely. Blood tests will also be required, and the most important one for diagnosing heart failure is measurement of serum natriuretic peptides, specifically the B-type natriuretic peptide, or BMP, and also the N-terminal pro-B-type natriuretic peptide, or NT-pro-BMP. So, BMP is a hormone which is released by cardiomyocytes in response to stretching due to raised intraventricular blood volume. The NT-pro-BMP is an inactive peptide which is released along with the active peptide BMP when the walls of the heart are stretched or when there is pressure overload in the heart, for example caused by fluid overload. BMP then acts on the kidneys which causes fluid and sodium loss in the urine and mild vasodilation, so releasing this excessive pressure. Now in heart failure the heart is not able to pump strongly enough for the fluid for the body's requirements. The heart walls become stretched and fluid starts to accumulate which causes back pressure and this causes more BMP to be released. An NT pro BMP is released into the circulation in equal, equal amounts to the active hormone but is significantly more stable and so it forms a good marker of BMP output. Okay, so if we are suspecting heart failure and the NT pro BMP levels are more greater than 2000 nanograms per liter, patient needs an urgent referral for specialist assessment and a transthoracic echocardiogram within two weeks. If we are suspecting heart failure and the NT pro BMP level is between 400 to 2000 nanograms per liter, patients will require specialist assessment and transthoracic echocardiogram within six weeks. And if the NT pro BMP is less than 400 nanograms per liter, heart failure is unlikely and other diagnosis should be considered. Now, BMP is useful for ruling out heart failure if it's a normal level. However, if it's raised, then it doesn't necessarily mean that heart failure is present because it can also be raised in renal failure, liver cirrhosis, sepsis, COPD, patients who have tachycardia, diabetes and left ventricular hypertrophy. And also, it can be falsely low in patients who are obese if they are on diuretics, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, angiotensin receptor blockers, and aldosterone antagonists. So, 
clinical judgment is essential when interpreting the results. So other blood tests that should be done are a full blood count to look for any anemia, urea and electrolytes to assess the kidney function and to look for any electrolyte abnormalities such as hyponatremia, which can occur in severe disease due to dilution, and also hypo or hyperkalemia. LFTs are important to look at the extent of liver congestion, liver damage, thyroid function tests to rule out any thyrotoxicosis and mixed edema, a HPM1C to look for any coexisting diabetes, and cardiac enzymes could be performed if you're suspecting an undiagnosed myocardial infarction. In terms of imaging, a chest x-ray is also very useful because it could show cardiomegaly, particularly in a posterior anterior view or a pleural effusion. There are numerous other signs of heart failure on a chest x-ray such as prominent upper lobe veins, alveolar shadowing, curly B lines, and at this point I, re I recommend that you have a look at these. And a chest x-ray is also useful to rule out other causes of breathlessness. Okay, so now I want to talk about a specific set of, of diagnostic criteria for congestive heart failure called the Framingham criteria, which has resulted from the Framingham heart study. So the Framingham diagnostic criteria is a composition of several symptoms and several signs and, it, and they are split into major criteria and minor, minor criteria. So the major criteria include acute pulmonary edema, cardiomegaly, hepatojugular reflux, neck vein distension, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea or orthopnea, a third heart sound, and the minor criteria include ankle edema, dyspnea on exertion, hepatomegaly and others. And heart failure is diagnosed when there are two major criteria or one major and two minor criteria. But the small print is that the minor criteria can only be used if they are not attributable to other medical conditions. So, for example, the pleural effusions can't be due to any infections or malignancies. And I'd recommend that you have a read of the Framingham criteria for the diagnosis of heart failure to get yourself familiar with them. So, we've got a patient who we think has heart failure and their BNP level has come back as elevated. Now they need specialist investigations, such as a transthoracic Doppler 2D echocardiogram, and this will be the most diagnostic. So this will show any cardiac abnormalities, and particularly it will look at the ejection fraction. It's a measurement of the percentage of blood in the left ventricle that is pumped out with each heartbeat. If the ejection fraction is less than 40%, this is termed as heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is where the ejection fraction is 40% or more. And here there is failure of relaxation of the left ventricle rather than contraction, which is the case in reduced ejection fraction. The New York Heart Failure Association has also classified heart failure into four stages based on the severity of symptoms. So class one is where there are no symptoms on ordinary physical activity. Class two, there is a slight limitation of physical activity due to symptoms. So moderate exertion causes symptoms, but there's no symptoms at rest. Class 3, there's symptoms on mild exertion, but there are none at rest. And class 4, there are symptoms at rest, and any exertion can cause symptoms. It leads to severe limitation and poor quality of life. So, let's talk about the management of heart failure. Firstly, patients will need specialist referral as soon as possible, so refer to the cardiology team. We'll split the management to, into non-pharmacological and pharmacological. So, non-pharmacological management is basically addressing lifestyle factors. So exercising, uh, improvements in diet, so reducing salt intake, 
regularly monitoring weight. So patients should be encouraged to weigh themselves daily. And if their weight increases by more than two kilograms in the space of 24 hours, then they should seek medical help. They'll also need to fluid restrict. So usually have less than 1.5 liters of fluid a day, especially if they're severe, but they need to be wary of dehydration and they need to monitor their weights daily. If they are obese, then they need to try and lose weight. They need to reduce alcohol intake. Alcohol can increase the risk of arrhythmias. And also, smoking cessation is essential. Flu vaccination should be taken every year. And in terms of travel, there are no specific travel restrictions for patients with class 1 and class 2 disease. But for those with class 3, they may require oxygen. And it's oxygen supplement and supplementary oxygen is recommended for those with class 4, also with in-flight medical assistance. For the pharmacological management, we need to distinguish whether we are treating acute or chronic heart failure. For acute heart failure where symptoms have come on suddenly, we need aggressive treatment to offload the excessive fluid from the system. So, intravenous diuretic therapy such as IV furosemide, 40 to 80 milligrams, is the first pharmacological intervention. This treats the fluid overload which is causing pulmonary and peripheral edema. But diuretics are symptomatic relief and they do not alter the prognosis. Patients will require high flow oxygen, they may need intravenous nitrates, they may also need inotropes or vasopressors if there's acute heart failure with potentially reversible cardiogenic shock. And also IV opiates such as diamorphine to reduce anxiety and also preload. For chronic heart failure, we need long-term management to try and prevent these acute exacerbations and to preserve ejection fraction to improve ventricular function. So firstly, ACE inhibitors and beta blockers for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So they've not been shown to have any effect on mortality in those with preserved ejection fraction. ACE inhibitors have been shown to improve ventricular function. They reduce afterload and fluid retention, so they slow down left ventricular disease progression. Contraindications to ACE inhibitors are renal artery stenosis, angioedema, hyperkalemia, and severe renal impairment. And the urea and electrolytes should be checked before starting ACE inhibitors. ACE inhibitors can cause a dry cough due to buildup of bradykinin, and so angiotensin receptor blockers can be tried if this occurs. Beta blockers reduce afterload and heart rate to prevent any arrhythmias. And the cardioselective beta blockers that are licensed for heart failure are bisoprolol, carbedilol, metoprolol, and nebivolol. And contraindications include asthma, second or third degree heart block, and sinus bradycardia. If a patient is already taking a non-recommended beta blocker, such as atenolol, then the NICE guidelines suggest that they should continue on these. Second-line drugs include aldosterone antagonists, such as spironolactone, angiotensin receptor blockers, or hydralazine and nitrates, which are vasodilators and are especially useful if patients are intolerant to ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. And if symptoms persist, then cardiac resynchronization therapy or digoxin should be considered. Patients need annual influenza vaccines and they need a one-off pneumococcal vaccine because respiratory infections are the third leading cause of hospitalization in heart failure patients. The prognosis of heart failure unfortunately is poor on the whole, with around 50% of people with heart failure dying within five years of their diagnosis. But the mortality rate does seem to be improving in the UK, where a study found that the six-month mortality rate for people with heart failure has improved from 26% in 1995 to 14% in 2005. And the risk of sudden death in heart failure has declined with improvements in the 
pharmacological management. So that is heart failure. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and have found it very useful and beneficial. Please remember to share these episodes with your peers and your friends who will also find them useful. You can ask us any questions you'd like regarding this episode or any other episodes on Instagram, which is medtalks.uk, or alternatively our Facebook page by searching for medtalks, or you can email us at hellomedtalks at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.medtalks.health, for all of the other episodes, and please remember to leave us your feedback, give us your comments, and We've got more episodes in the cardiology section coming up and then other series such as respiratory, gastroenterology and endocrinology and many more all to come. So thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Goodbye.